Community Alliance with Family Farmers presents the Farmer's Beat Podcast. That's B-E-E-T. Hi, my name is Grace Perry. I work at Community Alliance with Family Farmers, also known as CAF. I am the host of these episodes where we hear directly from small family farmers throughout California, getting the real information and the stories behind the food we grow and eat. In this series, we pay particular attention to the innovative work small-scale farmers are doing to keep their food safe to eat and share techniques farmer to farmer. Jacob's Farm Del Cabo was founded with one simple goal, to make lives better through food. Their roots stretch back to 1980 when husband and wife co-founders Larry and Sandra began farming in coastal California. As fate would have it, their paths crossed with a group of farmers in San Jose del Cabo, Mexico, and they started a collective whose main mission was to connect these communities with good products and teach them how to grow food in a way that's healthy for them, for the consumer, and for the planet. Hi, my name's Larry Jacobs. I'm farming in the central coast of California and working with 1,000-plus small-scale growers up and down the Baja California Peninsula and in in the state of Sonora. Uh, We started in 1980 uh, in a small little hamlet on the central coast, Pescadero. Uh, And in 1985, uh, we uh, had the epiphany of uh, connecting small growers with winter markets, organic markets in the States, as part of an effort to improve their quality of life and income levels. Uh, So here we are 40 years later, still growing cherry tomatoes and basil. Larry's introduction to farming is an interesting one. It went from starting a tree nursery straight out of high school to farming in Central America. When I got out of high school, I started a, a tree nursery, and that tree nursery ended up with problems with aphids, and the aphids ended up with the county ag advisor suggesting using metacystox to control them, which he sold me the metacystox, and the metacystox made me sick. And then I, as a result of getting sick from spraying metacystox, I mean, out cold, seeing stars, throwing up sick, I uh, ran into a fellow who's no longer alive, Everett Dietrich. And Deke was a early pioneer of biological control. He came out of UC Riverside, out of the UC systems. He ran their biocontrol lab. It was an early uh, version of a biocontrol out of the University of California. And he became a mentor and uh, introduced me to growing plants without some of these, without the pesticides and how to do it, harnessing the force of nature. So that was the very early days. And at some point I realized that farming was really hard work. That guy who came over to inspect my farm, the ag, county ag inspector, he really had a slick job and made more money than me. So, and I asked him, how did you get this job? He said, you had to go back to school. So I went back to college and studied soils. And somewhere along the line, I said, you know, I, I just felt like I needed to be farming again. That there's, there's, how do you do something in soils or plant diseases and not understanding how to, the problems that you have growing it. I got back involved in, in farming after doing some work in Central America. In Guatemala, I started a soil testing lab and was working with small growers there, and then came back to California to, to farm. And it was uh, after five years of doing that, my wife and I decided that, that we need, there was something more than just growing peas on the Central Coast and, and trying to make a living, that this piece of 
improving people's livelihoods was a part of something we enjoyed in Central America. So that was really the beginning of the Del Cabo story. Jacob's Farm is located on the central coast of California, while the Del Cabo Collective is headquartered in San Jose Del Cabo, Mexico, with various farms throughout the full length of the Baja California Peninsula and into mainland Mexico. Larry explains the differences in farms and the products that are grown. So the, the Baja farms are focused primarily on warm weather crops, and the and probably the biggest crop, the most important crop for that for those groups are ch- different kinds of cherry tomatoes, with rotated with squashes and peas and garlic, uh, basil, and then cover crops of. Uh, in the south, we use uh, a black eyed pea, which is locally called a judimon. And in the north, we're using a more traditional vetch or or rye vetch or some kind of grass and and legume mix for the cover crops. The big difference between the north and the south is the south does their cover cover crops in the summertime, and the north does their cover crops in the wintertime. Both coincide with the rainy seasons, different rainy seasons in different parts of the world. So the farms range from, you know, small as small as a half acre of, I think the average size farms at the, for the groups at the tip of the Baja are maybe two, three acres would be a pretty good size farm. And as you move north, the farms get a little bit bigger and you come into the middle of the Baja, the farms are more like 10 acre sizes. And then when you get close to the border, the families there have larger farms, more cattle and, and grain crops, and then mixed in with a small amount of uh, higher value specialty crops. In California, we have roughly between 300 and 400 acres of, of and this, these farms in California are focused on fresh culinary herbs and some dry farm tomatoes. It's all in the central course except for about 100 acres in the San Jose area, in the middle of San Jose and the south end of Silicon Valley. With over a thousand growers involved in Jacobs Del Cabo, growth within the organization has been very organic with word of mouth being the biggest promoter. There's over a thousand families involved. Uh, some of them, they're, and they're organized in different ways. Some of them are organized into one production group by their choice, and others are, each one is farming their own separate piece. And it was really up to them how they decide to organize themselves. It's grown or in a very organic way. Families will come to the other families and ask, how do you join this thing? And there's a little bit, there's some vetting that's done first by whoever they, who, who they approached. And then later, if it goes up the chain, we send a team of people in to see if they meet a profile that we're interested in working with. And then ultimately, then the decision will be made. So, And some of it's, there's a little bit of it driven by how much more market share do you think we have or could have? Is there a demand for the product? If not, is there something else they could grow that would fit into what we're doing? There's, there's no point in having somebody farm if they, they don't have a, if they can't make a living doing it. And a big piece of making a living is having a secure market. Jacob's Del Cabo products reach a wide market. Larry tells us who he sells his products to. We're supplying uh, most of the major retailers in the country. You can, you can name whichever ones you want our products in, in those stores, and th- we supply a lot, all the smaller mom and pops through distributors that we've worked with for 30 plus years. But we're much heavier on the West Coast. We're closer to where our product's coming from. With national distribution and a large grower network, food safety is an important component of the entire business. 
Interestingly, Jacobs Del Cabo grew, as did global conversations and concerns around food safety. So when we first started, food safety was not a soundbite. The concerns about uh, food being contaminated by uh, salmonella, it was just beginning, I would say. We started in 1985 uh, organizing and getting Del Cabo started. But food safety is a real concern. You don't want to get somebody sick, and you you certainly don't want to kill somebody. It is our responsibility as farmers to make sure the food we grow is, you know, tastes good and it's healthy for people to eat and that is not a vector of uh, a foodborne disease. And the more we learn about it, the better we can get at it, understanding how, how those diseases are spread and what the vectors are and how to mitigate against their spread is something we all need to be concerned about as growers. The bucket of ice-cold water was a truckload of basil being stopped at the San Ysidro border for, they, they detected some salmonella on it. And we, we were farming a very pristine place. There was no in uh, sources of manure or fecal contamination from residential or industrial waste sites. There, we're just in a really clean place. It was just hard to th imagine that there would be a source. You know, where would the salmonella be coming from? We were watering with drip irrigation, so we weren't spraying the plants with water. All our water sources were deep, were wells of potable water uh, quality. We weren't applying any materials that would it, it would obviously have any kind of uh, E. coli or salmonella loads. So it was a real head scratcher. You know, where was this coming from? There's an interesting chain of events. We hired, we brought down a Trevor Suslow and we marched around fields. You know, where did this come from? Let's go find the salmonella. And we spent a week with Trevor, you know, looking for salmonella, trying to find it in the system. We, we were able to identify the fields where they uh, detected the uh, salmonella. And so we went to that field and, you know, we took leaf samples. We, we weren't finding it. And we went to other fields, and well, let's look at the well. So, well, the well wasn't didn't have a hermetic seal; just had a cover on it, had a had a, a pump down in it. And he looked down into the well, and there was an iguana down in the side of the well. That's we gathered that that was our source of salmonella. We had some sal iguana salmonella that was uh, gotten in the water, and maybe it was a leak in the the drip tape. Uh, it somehow it got from the in the water was the vector, and that's what did it. From that point on, we, you know, whether it was seal all the wells, shock that well so that there was any salmonella was, and it was done. Uh, we began testing all the wells in the area on a regular basis, uh, and we began doing plate tests of all the product coming in from the field so we could get a coliform E. coli count or at least a, a yes or no, was there any detectable within 24 hours? After the iguana incident, they decided to regularly test their products for contamination. Through testing, Larry and team identified variables that increased food safety risks on their farm, including weather, seasonality, and activity on nearby land. Sampling our product after it was harvested and looking for, looking for sources of contamination, we learned a lot from that. We learned that the, the, the microbial load, the ambient microbial load changed throughout the year, just from the hundreds of samples that we did. And the big takeaway was 
in the cool months, starting in November, going through into April, May, the ambient microbial load was low. Just if you put a petri dish out on the table and let it sit out there, it was, you wouldn't, you're not likely to, you're not going to get much. But in the summertime, when the humidity went up and the rain started, it would, it would go up and it would stay up until it cooled down and the rain stopped. So we learned that uh, during those months, we had to be especially careful uh, because there was stuff just in the ambient load in the air. So, you know, if there's cattle five miles away, some dust goes up in the air, that dust moves around. And in the, during the summertime is when we had to be, we had to find ways to mitigate against that. And uh, the, we, one of the, the women who now runs our food safety program worked out a methodology for making sure all the leaves were clean before you harvested. So it was basically just doing a spray application of, uh, of a peroxide and uh, just before harvest, and the plant would dry off right away, and off you would go. So you'd drop the microbial load by several logs just by doing that. And you only had to do it in the summertime. You didn't have to do it in the wintertime, but in the summertime it was good practice. So that became the practice. Not only does Jacob's Farm Del Cabo abide by federal food safety regulations of imported produce, their farms also participate in third-party food safety audits every year. We have an audit, a third-party audit every year, sometimes more than one. They walk a lot of the farms and they walk, they go through all the facilities. And we do a pre-audit and multiple times a year with all the groups and all the farms in all the packing facilities, just to make sure that the rhythm and that the uh, that people are living and breathing this stuff and not just doing it for the audit. And it, people need to, you know, the backstory to the food safety is really important. The growers need to understand there's a real risk of getting somebody sick. I, I didn't think so in the beginning, but it, it became clear as the FDA got better at identifying people getting sick to food that there is this is really happening and we need to pay attention to it. And the when you're we're working with a lot of growers and a lot of a lot of different locations and uh, you know, the audits help but it's it's repeating that message you're responsible for keeping for, for making sure nobody gets sick so the the auditor is not there on a day-to-day basis the farmer is so it's those actions and each one of them understanding where the risk comes from so if they see an iguana in a well or they see you know, something that can become a source of fecal contamination, that's a red light and they need to take action. And that's what our food safety program is all about. Larry explains that certain practices that might seem at odds with food safety can actually have co-benefits. We wanted to put out uh, bird boxes. And so we got on board with that. That was a really good idea. And there was a little bit of pushback uh, from the food safety part side of our organization where you can't have birds in your field. <laughs> the birds are providing a service, and if you look at the data, these birds aren't vectoring disease unless they're coming from a, a capo. <laughs> and if you don't have a, a big source of uh, some contamination source, so it'd be a big field of cattle with a lot of poop around, you're okay. And these, these birds are eating insects. So if you can attract a bunch of insect-eating birds to your field, you're in, it's going to help you. And I, and I, you know, just as an organic grower, I think feel, diversity in nature is good, and that's what defines a healthy system. And as we start eliminating elements of the system that are 
that add diversity to it, whether it's willow trees along a, a waterway or, you know, hedgerows or, or uh, you know, just a tree here or there, getting rid of them because you don't want birds sitting in them pooping on your field might not be a good, that, that might not be the right direction to take because that's adding some diversity and creating a healthier system. Now, Del Cabo has a dedicated food safety team working with each grower to implement food safety practices and trainings. They figured out ways to get farmers and their employees to buy into food safety. Melina Arana lives in San Jose del Cabo, and she has a team who works with her. She has somebody in every different location who oversees that area, and she's um, she orchestrates the the overall program. So both the testing and our own internal auditing and trainings, workshops, and the audits and the interface directly with the third-party certifiers. Yeah, so, so it's, it was always, has always been a really dynamic, sort of didactic conversation, uh, these training sessions and workshops. We've got a, a couple of some very talented people on the, on the team who are just really good at teaching and they're teaching. It's fun being in their, in their little classes. Uh, she does one up here in, in the Watsonville area for the for all the staff and all the supervisors here. And it's it's a lot of it's asking questions. She'll, you know, ask them. You know, how do you get? You know, have you ever gotten sick by eating from eating food? And, and where does that come from? And and just getting them to think about it and let let them talk about what they what they know and what they don't know. And from that, it's go to what are the causes. And at the end of it, she gives them a little test. <laughs> but it's, uh, they're enjoyable, interactive classes. And all the, in, the, in the farms up here, all the supervisors participate in the, in the class and a lot of the workers. The group, with all the farmer groups, they're done in groups of like 10 to 20 people. The, you know, 20 would be a lot, 10 is a good number. She'll just go through uh, new information. If there's new things that she's learned, uh, they'll go. She'll often will do a pre-audit of the farms that she's doing the class with, and she'll she has this very uh, interesting way of taking pictures of things that aren't right, and then so the class is often uh, a slideshow of something that's uh, you know some deer excrement in a field and the question will be, well, what's that? And what, what should you do about it? So, or a, um, a, a rat trap that's not being, not set, or, uh, you know, something that hasn't been cleaned. And, but they're, so she, she's good at finding the things that are wrong, taking pictures of it. And that's becomes the heart of her class for whatever that group is. With the workshops that uh, our group does with the, with the growers and with our employees, I think it's really important just to come back to this basic thing of you know what you're trying to do and why and what are the big things to look for because that's what's going to cause a problem and you know learning you know water is a big carrier make sure your water source is clean if you're irrigating from a from a reservoir check that water treat it before you if you're overhead spraying I mean that's where you're going to get a field contaminated with stuff and so look for the big things and make sure the food you're growing is safe for people to eat and do what you can to prevent it from getting contaminated with something. It's not like it won't happen. It's going to happen. We're, we're all working in a natural system. You can decrease the risk and you can decrease the likelihood of getting, somebody getting sick. 
Wild animals present food safety risks on fresh produce farms because their feces often contain human pathogens. There are risk reduction practices farms can implement, like doing a pre-harvest field inspection for animal feces or developing a policy for what to do if an employee finds feces on produce or in the field. Larry describes tips for other small farms to consider. You should have some sort of program or training for your staff so that, you know, you don't want them to be harvesting. You know, you're doing a little CSA and you've got a little patch of lettuce and some deer comes and poops on it. You don't want them to harvest that lettuce and put it in the box. Oh, we're going to wash it. No, put it in the compost pile. Mark off an area around it and work around that. It's not, you're not going to lose that much. You may be preventing somebody from getting sick. Running a successful business allows Jacobs Farm Del Cabo to pursue personal passions and new technologies. Larry tells us what he is most excited about. Well, I'm really excited about making compost. I told that's why we're standing out here in the compost field, and I'm excited about this new compost turner. Uh, but there's also, I think, the world of um, the yeah, Moore's law, the increasing rate of computing power has is changing how we're how we're growing food. And tomorrow's farming is gonna be done with a lot of new different gadgets. We're playing with some really interesting semi-autonomous, they're not exactly tractors, but they're little tools that drive around the farm doing stuff for us. Um, we, call, we call them Amigas for sort of their, their field helpers. And I think that that kind of equipment is what we all need to be looking for in the future of how we can incorporate some of the new technologies that are appropriate for what we're doing to make the, the manual work easier and more efficient. And that, that's fun and enjoyable and, and also challenging. So uh, I think we're going to see a lot of that happening in the next five years. So, well, we've got, we've got the Amigas spreading compost in really tight areas. Uh, they'll put like a half inch or one inch or two inch of compost down. We can dial it in to lay a mulch on top of a bed exactly the way we want it. It's, it's not what you would use for spreading compost on a, on a big field, but if you wanted to mulch a bed or cover a bed or just put a precise amount on a bed, they're perfect. We're using them for to help harvest. So instead of carrying boxes out of a field, we put them on an Amiga and the Amigas can straddle a bed. So it's a lightweight, so we're not compacting soil. So they're moving things in and out of the field. Uh, we're playing with them for cultivating and we're uh, playing with them for um, bug, for vacuuming, for bug vacuuming. is a nonprofit organization that has been helping small farmers across California with technical assistance and policy advocacy since 1978. If you're curious about things you learned in this episode, head over to our show notes at calf.org slash farmersbeat. That's B-E-E-T, where we have links, resources, and photographs. Be sure to check out Jacob's Farm Del Cabo on Instagram at Jacob's Farm Del Cabo and share the episode with your friends. Also, follow us on Instagram at calf underscore fam farms to stay up to date on when new episodes are released and see more pictures from the farms featured in this podcast. This podcast would not exist without the funding from the California Specialty Crop Small and Medium Scale Farm Food Safety Technical Assistance Program, made possible by the United States Department of Agriculture. 
The contents of this podcast are solely the responsibility of CAF and do not necessarily represent the official views of the USDA. We thank them for their support of this work and helping real farmers share their food safety tips to other farmers. Are you a farmer interested in being on a future podcast or have a question related to this podcast? You can contact us at thefarmersbeat at calf.org. Thank you for listening and join us for the next episode from CAF, sharing farm fresh insights right from the field and giving voice to sustainable agriculture since 1978.